So for a long time, I have like this philosophical value of uh, sort of minimalism and travelling light. You know, when I go on holiday, I like to take as little as possible. And um, when we went on our honeymoon, I had it was almost like a handbag, and that stayed me for the uh, the, the entire week. However, when you have children, there is a challenge because children don't lend themselves to travelling lightly. I have tried to continue that travelling lightly idea with my kids and I have been um, shown up and spectacularly um, undone by going out with my children without taking the requisite sack of nappies and wipes and money and water and all the other instruments that bring kids. Now, on New Year's Eve, um, the weather had calmed down a bit and I'd had this uh, 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 urge to climb Leith Hill for a little while. It's the uh, second highest point in South East England and my dad always used to sort of make us march up and down it and so I felt that it was uh, uh, um, something I needed to make sure my children uh, endured as well and so it was uh, uh, New Year's Eve, Um, Sam was very up for a quiet morning in and I was like right kids up we go. Now my natural instinct was to be you know what kids just um, probably best not take your pyjamas, but just put on a t-shirt and some flip-flops and we will climb that thing and uh, I would just take uh, nothing else, you know, it it would just be a quick up and down. However, over time my wife and wisdom and experience has shown me that that is not a good idea, especially in an English winter. So we prepared to go up Leith Hill and you have multiple layers, you have waterproof, windproof coats on and no you don't wear flip-flops you find your biggest hardiest pair of boots or wellies and so we outfitted ourselves in all of this and uh, sort of parked in the park car park nearest the top and set out it was a close thing even with all that preparation I think it was a close thing to us uh, failing to mount Leith Hill Um, Kids fell out of trees. Um, They got stuck in the mud, so much to the point that their wellies got stuck in the mud and then they sort of fell out of their wellies into the thing. Uh, They got absolutely soaked with freezing cold water in the puddles and um, there was those quivering underlips. You know know things are going bad and the, the, the pallor of the face had gone a little blue. So you knew things were going uh, a little bit pear-shaped. If Kevin Travel Light had led that expedition, if me, before I had kids, had decided to take them up there, we wouldn't have made it. We would have ran back to the car, put the heating on and failed. But we did make it. With the help, perhaps, of the promise of hot chocolate and uh, some money in the little telescope at the top of the tower where we got to look. And it was actually a beautiful day. And you could see all the way up to, um, what's that big wheel thing in London? 
Yeah, the London Eye. So you could see that from the top of Leith Hill and all the big buildings. And it was a, a extraordinary thing. And my kids just didn't want to go down from the tower when we'd finally got there. And they loved it there. I want you to hold that sort of uh, scenario in your mind and now turn to 1 Peter 1. So we have made it all the way to verse 13. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter has spent verses 1 to 12 going over the wonders of grace. He has just been waxing lyrical lyrical about the goodness of God's provision and about the wonder of the gospel. And hopefully as we've read it, our hearts have sung with joy. But now an imperative comes. We have enjoyed all the love and mercy that Peter has enjoyed describing, but now he says you've got to actually do something. There is a request that we respond, that we act. Now, in verse 13, you're, if you're reading the NIV, it just says sort of, get ready, doesn't it? It just says, you know, prepare yourself. But apparently, if you go to the uh, uh, original Greek, there is this wonderful phrase, gird your loins. Um, gird, yeah, gird your loins. Everyone say, gird your loins. Excellent. So, in the Old Testament... People, um, they wore this kind of long sleeveless shirt. And that was a kind of everyday sort of pants and t-shirt type scenario. Um, And it reached down all the way to their ankles. So when you go to uh, the temple, when you went out in the marketplace, um, and when you were hanging out at home, you would let the garment hang long and free. And uh, so that was great. However, when you had to work when you had to uh, uh, sort of give yourself over to industry or whether you were called up for war, suddenly that long um, garment that lets you swing free and easy, suddenly it had to be tied up. Suddenly it had to be uh, fastened because you can't run in a very long skirt. And uh, so there was this phrase, gird your loins, which again and again is used in Scripture to say, prepare yourself, get ready, be serious about the thing that's coming up. I would like to suggest to you this morning that a great modern English alternative would be, get your wellies on. So when you see gird your loins, I want you to think, get your wellies on. Get prepared for uh, what's coming. Now, there's this wonderful uh, occasion where Peter is told to gird his loins. And it happens in Acts. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 12.
This is a really great account. So it's Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, see, politics always has a part to play. When he saw that, like, this delighted the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also, this really prominent guy in the church. Um, This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. So this is heavily guarded. Okay. And it goes on. Herod intended to bring him out for the public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Everyone say, earnestly praying. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was, surprise, surprise, sleeping. Between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, um, it's incredible the situations that Peter can sleep in. And this is yet another one. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. I like to think that he also kicked him in the ribs as well. And he woke him up. Quickly, get up. And you know what the phrase there is? Gird your loins. So this angel uses his Old Testament phrase, gird your loins. And um, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the, uh, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. In this great picture of a bemused apostle, sort of wandering, slightly befuddled, and with the, uh, those little bits of sleep thing that uh, go into the corner of your eye. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and then they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, the angel left him. Peter came to him himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. You have this epiphany at the end where Peter suddenly realises that all that had gone before it was for his good and for him to sort of believe. Now, I find it fascinating that in this account of Peter, we are not told of his faith at any point. He gets locked up, he gets into prison, he just falls asleep, and then even when he's being rescued by an angel, there's a sort of bemused stupor that he wanders through. And I don't know about you, but it reminds me of when Jesus, he's just about to get crucified, he's just to get arrested and crucified and die this horrible death, and he takes the lads into um, the garden to pray, and Jesus is obviously in sort of uh, mental and emotional turmoil, and what does Peter do? He just falls asleep. <laughs> and we just have this guy that, um, you know, like he, later on he will be an inspiration to us all, but again and again he, shows, he falls a little short of what I expect a great apostle to behave like. But wonderfully... The church had girded its loins. It had prepared. It had made sure it had those sort of hunter wellies that are very expensive and will see you through uh, any trouble because it prayed 
earnestly. Peter fell asleep. The church heard of Peter's arrest and they knew that no good would come of it. And so they uh, girded their loins and they prayed earnestly. And I think we have here a picture and a contrast of um, the sort of types of Christians out there. Believers, and this may come as a surprise to you, we're not always born ready. We are very good at snoozing, at taking a moment for ourselves. You know, uh, we are very good at not being alert to all the plans of God. We are very good at being uh, um, very focused on our own world and not having in mind what the Holy Spirit is up to. We are really good at freewheeling, you know, taking the path of least resistance, going to the churches where there is least effort, where the guy up the front doesn't bang on about how little money they have, the ones that we can dip in and out of without anyone noticing we're there or not. We are really good at putting in as little effort to our walk with Christ as is humanly possible. We are really good at allowing our devotional time with the Lord being squeezed out with whatever demand is placed upon us every morning or evening. We are really good at hitting autopilot and just going through the motions of Christianity. Some of you have turned up here and if I challenge you, go, oh, I'm not really sure how I got here. And um, there is that there is that sense of just going through the motions. And Christians are brilliant at that. If you have followed Jesus for a number of years, um, it is a phenomenon that you are probably familiar with. You go through the motions of Christianity. You go to the weekly group. You go to the Sunday meeting. The money goes out of your direct debit. You read whatever uh, book you're going through and you don't engage with it. You kind of free will and autopilot through these different things. You don't really allow it to touch your soul or you zone out. And some of you have done that now. Right now, you have zoned out my voice and you are thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to lunchtime. I wonder what I'll have. The problem is, when trouble and sickness and poverty and grief come against us, we are woken up from our stupor and we feel a little confused. What's happened? Why is my comfy life being disturbed? Suddenly, well, I was just going through the motions. I didn't really mean that about wanting to know God more and picking up my cross and following him. I was just hoping that this was a religion that was like an insurance policy for when I uh, die and maybe I get to heaven or at least have a Christian burial. And so Christians look confused when they get sick, when they get poor, when they are grieved. They're like, well, this shouldn't happen to me. I'm a Christian. Surely God's bubble of protection is over me constantly. And we get distressed. Oh, I don't even know if God loves me anymore. He has done, seemed to allow this calamity to hit me. And I was freewheeling through life and sort of... Uh, buying cars on HP and uh, um, sort of surfing the net all day and night and just enjoying every possible series of Netflix. 
And then suddenly I have to think about life. Suddenly I have to deal with emotions in me and calamities around me. And Peter says, gird your loins. And Sophia and Job and Miles says, put your wellies on. You need to be prepared. Things don't always go smoothly. And Peter says, your hope needs to be in God's grace, not in anything else. Your hope needs to be in God's grace rather than all the ornate plans you have for the future. Your hope needs to be in God's grace rather than any other circumstance that uh, you have kind of engineered, than any material possession that you have grasped. Your hope should be in God's grace, and then you are perfectly prepared to deal with any circumstance that comes your way. And you can tell the people that have done that, because when things go wrong, they are peaceful. Because it hasn't surprised them. They weren't autopiloting through life and then suddenly something brought them up short. They were prepared for it. They had their wellies on. And we are, if we are prepared, if we are focused on God's grace, we are peaceful. We are undisturbed. We are able to take these things in our stride. And it means that we can keep living well. Keep pleasing Jesus. Keep living in a way that delights our Heavenly Father. How many people have you met that something goes wrong? A, a, um, something is taken out of their life. And suddenly their faith goes to pot. And they go, I never expected this. And kick off a few chairs and go out of the church and you never see them again. And you find that kind of spiritual reality again and again because the Christians didn't have their wellies on. They weren't prepared for any eventuality. And Peter says, be prepared. I debated about this one, but I've gone with it. If this upsets you, I'm sorry. Um, So the phenomenon of zombies in contemporary culture uh, has kind of escalated. I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't really have zombies on my uh, radar, but my kids uh, love zombies. Um, they play this game called Zombie versus Plants. That seems inexplicable to me, how that could be fun. Um, but they're, they're, the, the, sort of the phenomenon of zombies has increased, and, and like, so it's kind of taken pop culture by storm. Um, my second favourite zombie film is George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And uh, done in 1978, so very dated. Um, But in the film, you have America plagued by this mysterious phenomenon. They don't really know what it is, and they don't really spend any time sort of detailing what is going on. But basically, dead bodies become reanimated, and they wander around causing damage and harm. I think probably most of us are aware of the sort of uh, uh, the media's image of a zombie. And you have these four uh, survivors. They haven't been bitten or attacked or died. And so they find sanctuary in a shopping mall. 
And uh, we're told of their adventures as they try to sort of barricade themselves in and protect them from bikers and zombies and stuff on the outside. And um, these zombies are strangely drawn to the uh, sort of the, the shopping mall. It's as if uh, there's a memory still in these sort of uh, undead folk that this shopping mall is, is something to sort of focus on. And uh, you also have this point at which these, these survivors, these protagonists in the film, they kind of get intoxicated with this, all the wealth of this, um, of this shop, shopping mall. And there's this uh, a great bit where this like, pregnant woman just looks at this guy like he's insane when he's sort of rejoicing in all his wealth. And she's like, you know, we've got bigger things going on here. Than, um, than what you're wanting to accumulate. And Romero's film is a very deliberate um, critique of society. It's a particularly a critique of consumerism, that basically when our mindset and our purpose is engineered and focused to buying stuff and accumulating wealth and finding the next gadget, and making our homes look lovely, we become dehumanised. We become less than the people that we were meant to be. That we become little more than these herds that sort of just bring disaster and damage everywhere we go. Now, Peter doesn't refer to zombies in his letter. But he does refer to a similar danger that that I would say is parallel. When people decide to trust in Jesus for their salvation, they get a rebirth. They are made new creations. They enjoy uh, God doing something wonderful and breathing something uh, incredibly supernatural in them. And uh, there is this uh, 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 phrase of sort of a resurrection occurs. We are resurrected again with Christ However, before Christ returns, the people that have trusted in Jesus, they still live in the bodies that they were in before they turned to Christ. And they still live in a time when Christ isn't completely in charge. And so what happens is, you have these believers that love Jesus, they are perpetually invited to fall back into those dead ways of behaving, in the ways that are essentially you are just going through the motions. Believers are invited to ways of thinking and behaving that have no life in them whatsoever. And this is why you will find Christians behaving less than ideally. Now, I know that isn't any of you in this room, but there are Christians in other churches that don't always behave perfectly. You know, they haven't got... Um, they, uh, they, are, they watch whatever they want on TV rather than sort of moderating it. They eat and drink whatever they want. They go to whatever places they desire and they are indistinguishable from every other person on the face of the planet. And they hoard 
and they blaspheme and they sleep around and they gossip and they envy and they backslide. Because even though that um, they've enjoyed that resurrection in their lives, they are being invited back to that dead, old way of thinking that doesn't go anywhere. And the problem is, and I, I wonder about this, if we are not pursuing these sinful appetites, if we are not sort of, uh, sort of devolving back to that zombie behaviour... What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to behave? You go, okay, Kevin, I'm not supposed to be sort of chasing after what I used to chase. But is is Christian life about just all the no's? You're not allowed to do that, not allowed to do that, not allowed to do that. And that sounds both very restrictive and very boring. Peter tells us in his letter that we are to live and do as obedient children. Everyone say obedient. Obedient. Now turn to Romans chapter 6, because Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Romans. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 6. says this in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So Paul contrasts the new life and the old life. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we we may too live a new life. So there's a contrast between the old life and the new life. For we have been united with Jesus in a death like his. And so we will certainly be also united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, we cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then this is kind of what we want to zero in in on. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part. Everyone say every part. part. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of of righteousness for sin no longer shall be your master because you are not under law but under and this Paul picks up on the same word that Peter said grace everyone else blindly uh, obeys their selfish appetites 
and they blindly follow the external pressures on their life. I have appetites and I will fulfil them and I want to keep up with whatever uh, anybody else is doing. I will copy the social norms of my time and uh, everyone does it to some extent and the idea is that non-Christians do it a lot more than we do because we have a different king in our lives. We are connected and devoted to the high king of heaven. The behaviour of everyone else and the appetites that rage in our bodies, they are not in charge of us. Our high king in heaven is supposed to be the one that calls the shots in our lives. And before we start moaning about the hardships, how we have to give up everything, give everything to Kevin and the church and become some sort of monk in Buckham Park, I want you to realise that the relationship we have with the High King of Heaven is not one of master and slave, but we are told it is one of father and son and daughter. When God has a purpose for us, when God has things for us to do, when God has things for us to fulfil, that comes out of not a, a overbearing and harsh master who wants to drive us into the ground, but a loving Heavenly Father who wants what's best for us. God is devoted to us. And whatever he longs us to do, it will blossom into something good and generous. It doesn't always feel like it at the time. Sometimes it's a struggle to get our head around it, but it will be beautiful in the end. Everyone say beautiful. Beautiful. So, hopefully we've kind of checked that thing of, oh, I don't know what God's going to ask me. You know, he's going to make me into a missionary in some sort of land I can't pronounce and I hate their national dish. That needs to be checked because God is a loving God who wants what's best for you. However it works out, it's going to be for your good, going to be for your benefit, going to be for your help. We had a video last week that was going to feature a little bit more strongly in this sermon, but basically we had this uh, video that was saying, you know what, you've got to allow the crazy world around you to fade out because there's all sorts of demands being put on you where you kind of rush and fill your life with activity and God gets pushed out. He gets and made a little voice in the corner that says, remember me, and you go, you know, I've got bills to pay, people to see, things to do. But we do need to rest. We need to worship and pray and enjoy our Bibles. We need moments to stop all the other voices going on and listen to his. Because you ain't going to know what God wants you to do unless you are listening. And you are not listening unless you are spending time with him. You can't just automatically assume everything. You cannot be obedient to God if you're not listening to what he has to say. God has to say things generally. Uh, you don't go into... Uh, 
Um, you don't go into sort of X-rated shops in Soho, and you don't uh, you don't watch outrageous things on YouTube. And that goes to everyone. It's not a specific law to you. That is a general one. But there are also stuff that God wants you to hear. That the stuff that He's telling Brian and Tim is different. And the same with sort of Barry and Karen. God has particular things to say to each of us as well. He has general rules. He goes, you know what, no one does that. And then for different people, there are different specifics as well. But we won't hear that if you're not listening. And you're not listening unless you take time with God. And you don't take time with God if you allow the manic nature of life to overcome you. And Paul says at the end of that uh, passage that we read out, that we are to offer our whole selves. You don't just offer your spirits to God like this internal nebulous thing that's inside to him and then you can devote your body to whatever activity that you see fit. The whole of your body, everything from the tips of your fingers down to uh, your toes and your head and everything else. It's all supposed to be devoted to God. It's all supposed to be an instrument of righteousness. And that changes stuff. Suddenly, you can't do with your physical body whatever you see fit. And this was, um, this is a recurring heresy in sort of that first century church. You know what? Jesus has saved my soul and I can get up to with my body whatever I see fit. And you might not say it in those things, but sometimes we act it out. It doesn't matter what my eyes see or what my body gets up to as long as my spirit rejoices God on a Sunday morning. There is uh, a wrong way of thinking there. And Paul says that you, your whole body, everything, every ounce of you, there is not something that you get to reserve and say, yeah, you're not having that God, or your holiness isn't touching that. Our bodies we inhabit can be instruments of righteousness. You can perpetuate chaos or you can perpetuate beauty. And you do this now, and now, and now, and tomorrow, and the next day. And it's a case of, so what are you doing with these instruments? Are you bringing chaos or beauty? So there was that. I'm moving on then. Did you do a new song at all today, Tim? We, we, we sang something something that we didn't do different, that was slightly different than we, we usually did. Have you noticed that it's very easy for churches just to sing the same hymns again and again and again? It's very easy for churches just to remember, oh, I really like the 1980s and their songs, and then not do any others. And so when some new song comes along, we go, oh, well, I don't like this. You know, it hasn't got Martin Smith as the author or, or, or something else. And some of us might hark back to, why haven't our hymns got these and thous in? That is the proper language of worship. And it's true for music that things can dry up and become stagnant very quickly where you don't explore any new avenues and you don't do anything different because this is the crowd pleaser and you're going to stay here 
Well, the uh, trumpet player, Miles Davis, he loved to do new stuff. He had this irrepressible passion to play and record music that would challenge whatever boundary was around at that point in his life. And he just did new stuff. Um, I kind of like his uh, uh, stuff in the sort of 19, uh, sort of 50s and 60s, but after that it goes a bit crazy. And even I can't handle some of the wacky stuff that he gets up to uh, later on. And, um, but nevertheless, he continually pushes the boundaries of music. And so he had this ability to play and he had a vision to push uh, 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 new boundaries. Uh, but uh, Davis just kept being met with opposition. And I just want to read you um, a bit from a biography. It says this. Mars Davis's quintet of musicians was a group of unreliable drinkers and junkies. One of the guys, Red, often came in late to gigs... Another guy, Chambers, was frequently drunk, even passing out while they ate. And Joe and John, uh, and John Coltrane, that is, who's uh, in the foreground here, were usually high. Stories of David's problems with his band were legion. Miles may have only been the only member of the band free from heroin at the time of their greatest album. Can you imagine the mess that that was? And he spent much of his time on the road keeping watch over them all, trailing after them, keeping them away from the cops, getting them fed and sobering up. Miles sometimes wrote out checks to Philly Joe with sardonic notes and saying that they were that this was just money for dope. Coltrane, who's an awesome saxophone player, may or may not have been the worst of the lot, but he bothered Miles the most because he was the most visible, in some ways the most important of his musicians. Miles saw trains slipping deeper into trouble night after night. During a stay at Storyville in Boston, Coltrane was in bad shape, nodding off on the bandstand, showing up late most nights or not at all, his clothes filthy and foul. Miles's quintet was alternating sets at the club with the Australian Jazz Quartet a band whose short-lived reputation was built on polite, chamber-like renderings of jazz standards. That is insipid, boring, uninspiring jazz. That's kind of like the worst jazz in Miles Davis's mind. And Miles sat at a dinner table with his tailor, Charlie Davidson, seething over Coltrane's tardiness. Coltrane had already missed one night and he was late again. And Miles was fuming. I'm going to have to try and edit this on the run. Charlie, I can't put up with this anymore. Uh, that, <laughs> that dastardly Coltrane. The other band is getting near the end of their step. Australians, right? Whiter than white, and you can hear the bile coming out. Coltrane walks in, high, looking awful, and Miles says to Coltrane, if you do this to me again, you naughty man, I'm going to sell you to the Australian Jazz Quartet. And then it says this. 
Now, 30 years old, Miles Davis's records popping up one after the other on different labels. Davis started off in 57 with a shocker. During a stay at Preview's Modern Jazz Rooms in Chicago, he announced to several journalists that he'd quit jazz. I've had it. There is no, this is no sudden decision. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and after I close here, I'm calling it quits. He said he had offers to be a musical director at a record company. He didn't need the money. He was disgusted with the business. He was sick of jazz and was beginning to dislike the word. Though Coltrane and Philly Joe Jones were not mentioned um, as the sources of grief, he fired both of them for their erratic behaviour during his stay there. And he replaced them with Sony Rollins and Art Taylor. His anger with Coltrane had reached the point that one night he punched him while the pianist Thelonious Monk looked on. In the end, the chaos of John Coltrane had no place in the harmonies Miles Davis was coming up with. Miles Davis had these amazing ideas of musical beauty and just this guy Coltrane, though he was good at what he did, just could not fit in because he would destroy it. These guys... Uh, played together for a mere five years. Um, in 1960, they parted ways and never uh, went on tour again. It is often the case that error can be temporarily excused. We can allow it once or twice, but it cannot endure. It cannot keep going on. It has to be stopped at one point or another. And I think this is most true with our Heavenly Father. He may be gracious, he may be forgiving, he may be lenient, but he is also holy, he is pure. He is the very definition of righteousness and beauty and goodness. When people confess Christ as Lord, the reality of that doesn't immediately present itself. We have enjoyed over the years people becoming Christians, coming in here and then having to pop out halfway through for a quick fag or some other obvious and conspicuous old way of life that hasn't quite been transformed. But in the end, sinful chaos has no place in the beauty of God. His very character is against it. It cannot stand. Ultimately, God's holiness will win. This is, might sound a little bit brutal, but turn to James chapter 2. I'm sort of coming to the end now. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is out clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself 
if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Everyone say dead. dead. This is brutal stuff. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. And you hear people, you know, I believe in my heart. And then Paul, uh, then James quickly kicks the chair out from under them. You believe in God? Well, whoop-dee-doo. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. And suddenly, oh, you, you knew this sort of belief in my heart isn't enough. You foolish persons, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. I love that term, God's friend. Who wouldn't want to be known as God's friend? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And if you know your Bibles, you will get upset by that. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now the Apostle Paul tells us that We are saved by grace through faith. That is the mechanism by which we enjoy everlasting life. But James sails incredibly close to the wind to make sure that we don't get complacent. He says that if our actions don't change because we're Christians, then he wonders if we're saved at all. It is uh, incredibly Uh, close to a contradiction of what Paul says elsewhere. But James says, you need to do stuff that shows that you are a Christian. It is not just a woolly feeling inside, and it is not just the practice of going to church. It is a fundamental change in how you see the world around you and how you interact with it. It is really easy to strut around and assert that we are followers of Jesus. It is really easy to memorise bits of scripture and pretend and look and sound like a Christian. But, if we are not self-controlled, humble, generous, patient, loving, truthful and sober, if these are not characteristics of you, after knowing Jesus for some time, then James would go, I'm not sure you're saved. Now, you are not saved by doing good acts, but James says the inside works its way out. And if your out bit is still outrageous, then that in bit, we're not so sure that it actually be redeemed at all. And James says, and I'm going to sort of close with this. James says that is your brothers and sisters in the fellowship that are the starting point for this. They are the grounds by which we see whether we've offered our bodies as instruments of worship. This congregation can be noisy, can be difficult, can be awkward. It can be smelly, it can uh, interrupt 
It can cause your nerves to fray as they do the same things over and over again. There are people here of every um, measure of frustration on the spectrum. But the people around you are not inconveniences. They're not trials to just be overcome or ignored or crossly wagging your finger at. The people around you are opportunities for you to show that you love Jesus, that you are kind, that you are patient, that you are self-controlled, that you don't lose it when someone does something you don't like, that uh, you don't get upset when someone puts their foot in it, that um, you speak the truth and you behave in a soberly way. This is where you start to find out if you're saved. This is where other people will see whether you're saved. It is something demonstrable. You can see the people that are saved because they change. They act different to what they used to. And so we're going to go for a coffee in a sec. And every interaction is an invitation. It's an invitation for you to show how deep your faith is. How much you really love Jesus. Whether it's a veneer that quickly gets scratched off when someone does something unsettling or whether you are just that wonderfully peaceful person that has just focused on the grace of God and can deal with whatever the person next to you throws at you. And I'm going to close because our goal isn't just proficiency. Just coping with life in goodness. But it is to be perfect. It is to be holy as God is holy. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the patience of everyone here as I've gone on. Lord God, I thank you uh, for the truth of your word and um, that it is supposed to change us and help us. Lord God, I pray uh, that we, you would help us be prepared that we would be awake in life, alert to what is going on around us. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you would help us um, not conform to what everyone else is getting up to, but that we would love holiness above all. And God, I pray that we would show and prove our salvation by the kindness and gentleness we behave towards everyone around us. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. And all those people said, Amen. Amen.